Um, also, I want to just invite you, if you're welcome, if you're joining us the, for the first time this morning, welcome and want to invite you to our Easter services. We have Palm Sunday this coming Sunday. After that will be an Easter egg hunt, which is not just a Spring Hill thing, but we're all about loving our neighbors. We want to invite as many people as possible to that. We have joined with Love, Inc., and we have all kinds of Easter baskets to give away to the kids. And then we'll enter into Holy Week, Monday, Thursday at our Legacy site, Good Friday here at the Bozeman site, which will be a worship service in the round. Um, and then uh, that will lead us to Easter Sunday, which I'm really looking forward to uh, with you. But for this morning, um, we are still continuing into the, the series that we have been walking through in John's gospel. And remember, John wrote this, this word, he said, so that you may believe. So I figured, why not just hang out and just bathe in it for as long as we need to, so that we may believe. And uh, this morning, we've been doing this since November. This morning, we are officially one third of the way through John's gospel. So uh, just hang in, hang in with me, settle in. We're going to be doing this until at least uh, probably the summer. But last uh, two Sundays ago, we jumped into John's gospel. We were in chapter 7. I want to invite you to turn there with me. Um, and as you do that, as you find your place, um, let me just catch you up as to where we've been. Um, Jesus has just walked into this religious holiday uh, in Jerusalem with all these crowds gathered around him. And he's right in the middle of this celebration, like the peak of what was called the Festival of Tabernacles. And Jesus begins teaching these crowds like no one had ever taught before. This moment with Christ carried so much authority that everyone within earshot was in awe. And people began asking, how is it this man who has no learning, no education, somehow has all this knowledge? I want you to imagine as we open up God's word this morning, like a conference of PhDs and scholars and experts in the room, and somehow the janitor walks up on stage, and of all people, the janitor outshines everyone. You could hear a, a pin drop in the room, and everybody's trying to figure out the same question as these crowds encircle Jesus, who is this man? Who is this man? So this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. And our passage is a bit wordy, but I promise you there's some really good application for our lives if we, uh, if we listen intently. So let's turn now, John 7, verses 25. And as we do that, let me just pray for the reading of God's word. God, we ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see you more clearly, Lord. Ears to listen for you, not just now, but all week long, Lord, and heartbeats to chase after you. God, we just want to be faithful to your word and for what you have in our lives. So Lord, uh, we are open now for what your Holy Spirit would have for us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. So John 7, 25 to 36, hear now God's word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and of him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we wouldn't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And thank the good Lord for that word. Anyone familiar with the, the Armenian genocide? Anybody remember that from grade school? We don't talk about it a whole lot. Armenia is one of the, the oldest Christian civilizations in the world, but it's also people who have went through a ton of religious turmoil. I mean, the mid-1800s, the Armenians had went from like this sleepy faith of stagnant churches to a full-on Christian revival. But don't think like Billy Graham and stadiums and all these people coming forward in freedom. This was much more covert and underground. Because at the time, millions of Armenians were living under the control of a Muslim government. In the mid-1800s, to leave the faith was a capital offense, right? But by 1856, the law was suddenly lifted, and for a season, there were reports of thousands of displaced Armenians now openly giving their life again to Christ. Just eight years later, though, in 1864, life drastically changed. The government suddenly reversed course and reinstituted laws against conversion, and over the next 50 years, Armenian Christians were walking targets. By World War I, something called the Young Turk Movement was afoot, and Armenians were now seen as a threat to the Turkish and Muslim way of life. And on April 24, 1915, a full-on elimination of Christians began. Over a million Armenian Christians were slaughtered. It's crazy how our history books have skipped over that. One author wrote about a, a young woman who had made her way to a refugee camp in the midst of this genocide. And as she was checked in, a nurse lifted the sleeve up on her shoulder in order to give her a shot. And she found a scar in the form of a cross. This young believer, she began to explain how she was caught up in her village with her other Christian friends and family. And the soldiers stood her up in front of everyone and they asked her, Muhammad or Christ? She said, I answered with the only name I could. For seven days, they went through the same routine, Muhammad or Christ. And each day, she professed her faith again in Jesus. And every day, the cross was then again burned into her flesh. Finally, on the last day, they told her, tomorrow, if your answer is not Muhammad, you die. That evening, she somehow escaped her captors. And as she told this story with tears, she said, that's how I learned the meaning of the cross. You know, in the West, the idea of Christian persecution, at least that kind of pers Christian persecution is unthinkable, isn't it? It's sort of trendy, I think, nowadays for us to talk of persecution coming. But if we're honest, we know nothing of the sort. We still live in a country with open churches on every block where on any given Sunday, including this one, you can raise your hands and worship God in freedom. If you spend any time in the Bible Belt, as, as I have there's crosses everywhere, big crosses on the street corners, little crosses in everyone's house. It's a part of the Texas pride. 
In fact, if you're a high school student, it's a cool thing to have the Bible verse on the back of your letter jacket. And yet from the infancy of our faith, all along the timeline of history, we know the gospel somewhere, somehow has been under attack. It was this way from the very beginning, right? It began with King Herod as he implemented this plan to kill all the newborn babies under two in hopes that he would sweep up the newborn king. And then it continued in the book of Acts with this man named Stephen who was stoned to death for his testimony of the risen Lord in front of the Sanhedrin. It continued on in AD 64. You'll remember the, the great fire of Rome as, as the city burned for six days. Some said nearly 70% of Rome was in ashes. And when it all fell apart, Emperor Nero needed some kind of scapegoat. So he pointed to the Christians and blamed them for the arson. The pitchforks and mobs came out in droves. AD 303, Emperor Diocletian then later issued an edict to eliminate all of Christianity and the entire empire. Followers of Jesus were purged from society. The rest of them were worshipped to bow down to false gods. And had it not been for Constantine's conversion in 313, who knows where we'd be. But the history of Christian faith, what I'm trying to say is the history of our faith is riddled with opposition. And not just history, still today we can point to a map and find it. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, North Korea, Nigeria, Libya, Somalia, China. Some estimate there's over 340 million Christians persecuted or discriminated against every year on our planet. And the Bible is by far the most controversial book ever written. So how is it though, that despite all the headwinds and the opposition and all the persecution and death and calamity and carnage, how is it that our faith still stands strong? You ever thought about that? Five billion Bibles are circulating this earth. Yet as Christians in the West, I think we can all feel a change in the wind. It's been coming for some time now, really decades, right? There's a notable cultural shift that is increasingly moving away from our faith and with it, the convictions that we hold near and dear. And I feel like as God's people, we respond in one of two ways. We either bury our heads in the sand and we sort of blend in with the changing times, or, or in fear, we jump to the conclusion that this must be the beginning of the end and soon the church's demise will come. But in our scripture lesson this morning, I want us to see how God's word gives us a third lens by which to help discern the times. In fact, in our, in our passage, we find this confused crowd, right? They want to know, how is it that this man who is so hated and so polarizing and so reviled, so counter to culture, has somehow taken the podium? Jesus is speaking to the masses and no one's doing a thing about it. The janitor has taken the stage in the conference of the experts. Look at this up on uh, the screens, verse 25 here. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man they seek to kill? And yet here he is speaking openly and they say nothing about him. At this point in John's story, it's no secret. Jesus has stirred the pot. He's got enemies everywhere. And some of the more perceptive people in the crowd, they wanna know how is it that this man's been handed the microphone? You know, we're no stranger to this, right? And in our day and age, uh, the mob not only has the power to shut down the unpopular decision, they'll cancel the individual altogether, remove them, 
poof, gone. Poor Mr. Potato Head took a hit. No, this is historically what those in power do though, right? On all sides. When those in power see a threat, they seek to remove it. And yet some of the most powerful men are standing in this room in the temple courts and the religious elite of Jesus' day are idly standing by as Christ preaches the truth. And for some reason, they're doing nothing. And as the people gather around Christ, they're they're trying to rationalize this disconnect. How is it that this despised man is allowed to speak? How is it that those who are in power are allowing this threat to stand tall? And for the first time in John's gospel, we see maybe just a hint that maybe Jesus is winning some of them over. Look at this up on your screens, verse 26. They say, can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? It's a crazy thought, right? That the one who so many have have sought to kill is now the keynote speaker at the peak of this this religious festival. I imagine like the Pharisees standing in robes, just staring daggers at Jesus as he teaches the people about this new way of life. And no one's putting a stop to it. And the crowds wonder, well, did we miss something? How is this possible? Maybe they've joined on the team. But it's a short-lived theory. Look at this in verse 27. But we know, they say, where this man comes from. And when the real savior comes, no one will know where he comes from. Can't be Jesus. There's no way this is the savior. See, it was thought at the time that the Messiah would come in this like mysterious cloud and and glory and everybody would see it all at once. But that's not how this went down. We know that. The crowds knew that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His family was from Nazareth, the, the town in the middle of nowhere. What good comes from that town? There's no way Jesus could be who he says he is. Apparently, all the crowds had forgotten the scriptures. Look at this in Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clouds of Judah, out of you will come from me, the ruler of Israel. Nonetheless, the people of Jerusalem were so caught up, they wanted to know, how is it that this imposter has the spotlight? If he's the fraud we all think he is, someone should remove him. You know, I think we live in our own interesting moment in time, right? And in some respects, there's never been a better time to be a Christian. We can get our word out faster than ever before. Podcasts, movies, books, the like. And yet at the same time, particularly in the West, you can feel this growing concern that the ethos of Christian thought is eroding. That the microphone from Christendom is being taken from us. And we wonder what will following Jesus look like 20 years from now, 30 years from now? What will our faith look like for our children or our children's children? And there's this unspoken disconnect for us. How does the church engage in a culture where the gospel is seen as irrelevant and the idea of a God is seen as ridiculous? Here's the third lens I thought we might look through this morning. Um, Hear me out here. Tell me if you think this is true. Maybe we become too focused on the situation around us instead of being focused on the one who guides us in the situation. Let me say that again. Could it be that we become too focused on the situation around us and not nearly focused enough on the God who goes before us? Let me show you what I mean. Now keep reading this with me. Look up at verse 28. So Jesus now hears these crowds speaking about him and he proclaims, he says, I'll level with you. You know me and you know where I come from. That's true. 
but I have not come as my own accord. He who sent me is true. And then here's where Jesus throws the bomb. You don't even know him. Let's just leave that verse up on the screen for a minute. The people of Jerusalem want to know how is this rebel rouser named Jesus standing in the middle of the temple courts preaching the gospel. And they begin trying to rationalize this impossibility to themselves, right? Well, maybe the religious leaders, maybe they buy into what he's saying. Maybe they're beginning to take to this man, but he can't be the Christ. We know where he's from. So Jesus steps into the conversation. He says, yet you know everything. You know right where I'm from. You know all about me. And yet you know nothing. Can you imagine? Jesus just told these faithful pilgrims in the middle of their most holy of celebrations, the God that you're here for, you don't even know him. You have no idea who he is. Because these crowds have become so caught up in what they see around them, they're trying pragmatically to explain what's going on. They become so focused on who they think God is and what they know to be true that they've left behind God's word entirely. The Messiah is standing right in front of them, but all they can come up with is their own practical explanation for how this is going down. And then John gives us this gold nugget in our lesson. Look through this lens for a minute. John sets up the entire situation. He says, here's why. Here's why Jesus has the podium. Look at this in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Do you see the lens? The chief priests and the scribes, they were arch nemesis. They were enemies, right? And they, they send the officers to arrest Jesus. These two groups didn't get along. But even they, when they team up, cannot stop what Jesus is doing. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Here's a reality I think we often miss. I think despite what the future holds, God is the one who holds the future. You know, I think so often we want to forecast the weather ahead. We, we want to predict the patterns of tomorrow and come up with all the reasons for why and the wind blows where it does and try to rationalize and strategize the next steps for the church. And yet right between the eyes this morning, God's word hits us with this reality that we're not living in our time. We're living in God's time. You with me? And as the crowds are trying to figure out how this man is still alive, how it is that Jesus' word is, is being shared unshackled, John says Christ was free to speak, not because of what was done or undone by us, but because his time had not yet come. Remember back in the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is at a wedding and his mother comes to him, the party's sort of dying out and he, she says, we, we need some more wine. Remember that moment? Remember what Jesus' response was? My hour has not yet come. See, it's very clear from the beginning of this gospel that we're waiting for something. There's a moment in time that is coming and Jesus is living his life with this laser-like focus on that moment. Fast forward with me to John 12. Look at this again up on your screens. Jesus is now facing the cross, right? He's looking to his death and this is what he says. Now is my soul trouble and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. So Father, glorify your name. And when the hour finally comes, darkness covers the entire land and all seems lost. Jesus takes his last breath, the disciples go fishing. And yet in that moment, what seemed like defeat 
is actually the beginning of victory, all in God's time. What I'm trying to say is whatever difficulty you're facing right now in life, wherever it's a challenge for you to live your faith, whatever tomorrow brings, whether it's sunshine or storms, freedom or captivity, God forbid, even death, best or worst case scenario, the same God is still in control. And I think Jesus said it better than I ever could. Here's the truth for us. Christ said, I'm gonna build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. You know, so often I think we get caught up in our own time and and our own plans and purposes and priorities as we discussed a few weeks ago and we forget about God's time. Could it be that even the darkest hour of this life, of this world, that God is still working his plan of salvation? A few weeks ago, um, I was on a flight over the Rocky Mountains near Denver and we were coming up over the mountains into the plains and you might've heard about the, the big blizzard that was to hit. They said it was like the biggest blizzard in a century coming. You could see the darkness of these clouds and we knew we were gonna hit major turbulence. This isn't like fasten your seatbelt turbulence. This is like screaming we're all gonna die sort of turbulence, right? And with every bump in the sky, you would hear it. You would hear the gas and the, the, the agony. There's a woman sitting across from me. She's gripping onto her husband's arm so tight. I kid you not, it was turning white. And then I look down the aisle and the stewardess is reading a book with this calm, cool, collected smile on her face like nothing was even going down. Why is that? It was almost as if this was another day in the skies for her, right? And in that moment, it hit me. The stewardess has been through it all before. She knows the plane's gonna land. The rest of us are the ones panicking. I shared that story at Legacy and we have a a stewardess of... Like 30 years she was with the airline. She's shaking her head going, yep, I've been there a thousand times. Now, what I'm saying this morning is that I think God's sovereignty and power and might is often underestimated by his people. You know, the reason that Jesus was in the pulpit in the middle of a Jewish festival was because his hour had not yet come. And the reason that he died on the cross and and darkness covered the land and that's where we're headed in a few weeks was because that same hour had finally arrived. And yet, whether in freedom or in death, all of it happened in God's time. So we got Easter right around the the corner, right? We're gonna prepare for our own religious festival and celebration and and listen for our own uh, word of God to be spoken into our lives. The encouragement this morning is as we head in and prepare for that festival, we fix our eyes not on the things happening around us, but on him. I wanna invite you to pray with me this morning as we wrap up. And as we do that, I I wanna just read these words from Isaiah 55 and just let that be our, our prayer this week. Pray with me, will you? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. So are my thoughts greater than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for why I sent it. So God, we just confess this morning, we believe your word to be true. 
Lord, we know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, that you came to save that which was lost. Lord, and yet we still look around at a world that is wandering. God, we ask, would you align our lives with, with who you are? Would you align our purposes and our mission with yours? Lord, would you help us to, to live boldly for the gospel, come what may, knowing that you are in control, Lord, and that we are still living in your time. God, and when that hour comes that you return in glory, Jesus, Lord, would you help us to rejoice with all the saints who have gone before. Lord, fix our eyes on that moment. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. <laughs>